First Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. In a study I'm calling, what did you call me? Let's pray. <laughs> thank you. Father, thank you so much for your word and, and for your grace. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we thank you for the chance to learn more about your word and to answer questions and um, things like that. Lord, now as we come to the text, we pray that you would apply this to our lives, that you would help us to interpret it correctly, Lord, in its context as you intended it. But Lord, but most importantly, Lord, to grow and to, and to shine forth like lights. In Jesus' name, amen. So nicknames are common in the sports world, right? We all know nicknames. Babe Ruth, the Sultan of Swat, the Great Bambino. Now, out of the 25 top athletes with the most nicknames, the winner is NBA star Shaquille O'Neal. He holds, I'm told, 25 nicknames. That's a lot. The top three being the Big Shaqtis, the Diesel, and Shaq-Fu. And so those are, those are great. Now, as the Church of Jesus Christ, you and I might not be able to beat Shaq one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe in a free throw contest, because <laughs> he, he wasn't always the best free throw. I mean, he probably beat me, but, you know, but in the, when it comes to NBA, he wasn't always the greatest. But I can bet you that we could give him a run for his money when it comes to nicknames and titles. I mean, just think about all the names that were called in, in Scripture, Soldier of Jesus Christ, you know, co-laborers with Christ, Christian, I mean, the church, all these different things. With just in our passage alone this evening, we're given six names or titles as a result of our position in Christ. We're called living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So, man, you should get that on your car. All these different names that, that you have, a.k.a. That's you. Now, as we work through this passage and we look at these different names, we're going to learn two things from this passage. Number one, we're going to learn the importance of our intim intimacy with Christ. And second, we're going to see the implications from our identity in Christ. And so first, in verse four, we learn the importance of our intimacy with Christ. Peter begins by saying, coming to him as living stone, as to a living stone, excuse me, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And so really, if you think about it, the basis of the Christian life is coming to him, which is Jesus. This was the focus of the message of John the Baptist and Jesus himself. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was calling people to the Messiah to repent, to get ready for the kingdom, and Jesus was calling people to repent, to get ready for the kingdom. That's the whole basis of the Sermon on the Mount. He was teaching them what true righteousness was. And true righteousness was submitting their life to the Lord, recognizing that they're poor in spirit, that they need him. And ultimately, they, they come to him. The writers of the New Testament, the apostles and prophets, their message was come to Jesus and be saved. But it doesn't stop there. The Christian life continues on with that. Yes, we came to Jesus to be saved, but we're to continue keeping on coming to Jesus as in a relationship with him. I'm told in the, in the Greek language here, this word implies a, per, a personal, habitual approach to Jesus, coming to him habitually, continually, as to a living stone. We will call this our daily walk, right? You and I, we're all pilgrims. We're journeying through this life, but Christ is with us. He's walking with us, and we daily need to come to the Lord for wisdom, for strength, as he leads us. Jesus saved us so we can have a relationship with him. And it's real simple how to have a relationship with the Lord. 
You simply read his word and you pray. God speaks to you through his word, through the Holy Spirit, and then we speak back to him through prayer, just like a marriage or a friendship or anything else. It's a relationship. God wants to speak to us. He wants to commune with us. He wants to give us wisdom and teach us to walk. And then we can also commune back to the Lord. And this is this relational aspect that we have in the Christian life. It's through this daily communion with the Lord that we're reminded, that we're reminded of our hope, our strength, our joy, our wisdom, everything that we need for life and godliness. It's in that time with the Lord that the Lord strengthens us and, and, and matures us. Now notice Peter gives Jesus another name or title here. He calls him a living stone. Now Jesus actually has all of us beat because he has some hundreds of names. And I don't know if we still have the, the, the picture up there, but we had you know, the, the plaque with all the names of Christ. Pastor Gene even did a series at one time on names of Christ from, from A to Z, selecting different names. There's so many that we only had to select a couple. But Christ, he has more names than, than all of us. And one of these names is a living stone. He's a living stone because he's alive. It's pretty cool just to remember that, right? Wow, Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's not just like some statue that we worship. He's actually alive right now in heaven. I love that Peter in his epistle teaches us that Christianity is a living religion, a living faith and not a dead, dry religion. Just look at the first chapter. He talks about a living hope in verse three of chapter one. He talks about God's living word in chapter one, verse 23. And now he talks about Christ, our living stone, who we come to. So the Christian faith is a living faith. It's an active faith. It's not a dry, dead religion. Now this name implies that Jesus is eternal and that he's the Jewish Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. The Messiah in the Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, and even Matthew spoke of Christ as the rock, as the stone. Daniel 2 specifically speaks about that stone which would come and break the feet of that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, meaning that Christ, the Messiah, would come back at his second coming and establish his kingdom on earth. Jesus is this living stone. He's eternal, but he's also the Messiah. Now, to those who accept him, he becomes your foundation for life. He's the foundation for which we build our life on. And that's what he said in Matthew. He says, those who believe my word and obey it are like those who build their life upon the rock. And though the winds and the storms come, the changes of law, the changes of government, whatever it might be, you'll stand because your life is founded upon Christ, who is the rock, his teachings. Every person must make a choice on what they will do with Christ. What decision they will make to him, will they choose to come to him or will they choose to reject him? As we see, those who choose to come to Christ will be blessed, but those who choose to reject Christ will ultimately stand before him in judgment. He's the rock, so he's the foundation, but he's also the stone which judges and will crush the feet, crush the feet of all nations which will reject him ultimately. Now, while Jesus revealed himself as Messiah by many infallible proofs, not everybody accepted him, and that's what Peter goes on to say here. He is the living stone, yes, but he was rejected by men. He was rejected by men at his first coming, and he's still rejected today. People look at us as Christians and think, you guys are crazy. You guys are wasting your life believing in, in this Jesus. How do you really know that, you know, that he was really uh, God come as man? Maybe he was just some false teacher or something. But we know that Jesus is whom God, um, you know, said he is, because we're told here that he's chosen by God and he's precious. And so while the world may reject Jesus, that's no basis for, whether, for what we think about him. 
Just because the world thinks something about Christ doesn't mean that we should think the same thing. I don't care what the people say on Discovery Channel or History Channel. It doesn't matter. We know what God says about Jesus. God says that he's chosen, he's precious. He's chosen because in eternity past, God determined by his foreknowledge and by his determined will that he would send Christ to this earth. Yes, he was crucified by men's wicked hands, but it was God determines plan, God, God's determined plan that he would send Christ as the chosen one to die for us. He's precious. He's God's only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity. And you and I can know that he is in these two roles because God raised him again from the dead, proving that he was God's son and proving that he was the chosen one, the one that would die in our place for our sins. And so coming to Christ is important. Having intimacy with Christ is important because we realize who Christ is and who we really are. We find our identity in him. You know, the world's looking for identity. You know, they're looking for identity in what they do, how much they know, what degrees they have, who they're married to, or how good they look, whatever it might be. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, having an education or having a good job or, you know, having a beautiful wife like I do is bad, you know, kind of thing. But, you know, but our identity ultimately comes in Christ. I had to put that in there. It's brownie points. No, joking. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, but all, all these things, you know, I mean, our identity ultimately is in Christ. That's who we find our identity in. And we find it as we come to him in intimacy. It's an important thing. But second, in verses 5 through 10, we see implications from our identity, who we are in Christ. Verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now Peter turns his attention from Christ, the living stone, to you and I. He says, you also. So this refers to all who come to Christ, the living stone all those who come to him for salvation, those who come to him for fellowship. And you, uh, you and I, like Christ, are also identified with him. We are also living stones. We're living stones because we're made alive by Christ. We're made alive. We're made new in Christ. We're a new creation. But also we find our identity in Christ. We find our, our rockness like him, right? But also we find our stability in him. Our identity is in our position. Our stability is in his word. The stability in his word is the foundation of the church. It's the foundation for the life, our life personally, but it's also the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is Christ, and that's what the New Testament writers established. And they did that through preaching Christ and also preaching and teaching his word. Now, as you and I come to Christ... We're made living stones, and God uses each one of us to build something, to build something amazing, a spiritual house, something beautiful, a temple of God. And it's really neat if you think about how the New Testament describes us and God's work in the church. You see, the moment we receive Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that we become temples of the Holy Spirit. No longer does God dwell in a building. He dwells in believers. Not only that, but as these believers get together, upon the foundation of Christ, which was preached by the apostles and prophets, you and I are like unique stones in which God fits in perfectly to show the world something amazing, something beautiful. And so it shows that each one of us has a specific purpose in Christ. We have a specific way that we fit into the body, just like the metaphor of, you know, the body of Christ. 
the hand, the arm, the eye, the leg kind of thing. We all have a specific purpose. And even so in the church, as we come to Christ as living stones, he's able to use us in the church. Without you, there's a gap. Without me, there's a gap. So we're all essential and important in this work that God wants to do in building his church and, and um, you know, establishing his, his uh, kingdom here and, and um, seeing people come to know him. Now, not only are we a beautiful temple, a beautiful building, but we're also priests who serve God at this beautiful building and temple. Now, there's no teaching in the New Testament that teaches that there is an elite group of priests who rule over us or the laity. There's no teaching whatsoever in the New Testament. Rather, all believers are called priests before the Lord. That's what Revelation 5.10 says. God has made us priests and kings. Now, you and I as priests have a work to do, and, that, uh, and one of those works is to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices. And what would make their sacrifices acceptable was really two things, their position and the actual offering themselves. You see, anybody can just bring an offering to God in the Old Testament, but they had to have the right position, and they had to have the right offering. This is shown to us in the account of Cain, Nadab and Abihu, Saul and Uzziah. Some of these kings said, hey, you know what? We're going to be priests. We're going to offer a sacrifice. And the prophets came to them and said, that wasn't a good thing you just did. Don't do that. Or Cain says, hey, I'm going to bring the works of my hands when God has established that I'm supposed to bring him a lamb. And God says, I can't accept that. You know, and same with Nadab and Abihu. God was going to pour out his glory, but they wanted to offer this censer of incense when God didn't establish that they were to offer it at that time. And so for you and I as believers, yes, we're priests, we have a mission, but we need to know what God wants us to offer him because what we offer him is, is supposed to be acceptable. Now in the New Testament, we're given five sacrifices that you and I as God's priests can offer on a daily basis. We can offer up our body as living sacrifices, which means to have a holy life separated to the Lord. That's Romans 12.1. We can offer up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And that's Hebrews 13, 15. We can offer up God our good works. That's Hebrews 13, 16. We can give to God financially out of our finances. It's a sacrifice. It's fruit to our account. That's Philippians 4, 17 and 18. And then as we preach the gospel and win souls, Paul says in Romans 15, 16, we also offer up sacrifices to him. And so these are all just different ways that we can offer up to God. And so our position allows us to do it because we're priests in the eyes of God, but also we have God's word so we know what God truly wants us to offer him. Verse six, therefore it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put to shame. Now Peter gives us the application of our position as he points back to the scripture in the Old Testament. He points to Isaiah 28, 16. Now the context of this passage was God was speaking to the leaders of Jerusalem about their political alliances with the pagan nations around them. And he tells them here, hey guys, your alliance is weak. It can't be trusted, it can't be dependent on. Rather, you need to come and rely upon me, the true foundation, the true cornerstone. And if you do so, I will be true I will be tried and true. I will be sure. In the same way, Peter encourages you and I as believers, saying, yeah, guys, you're a living stone. You're built on Christ. And you can have hope that as you're built upon Christ, your foundation is tried and true. 
we will not be put to shame. While the world may mock us and try to shame us and think, you guys are crazy, you guys are wasting your life, we can say, hey, you know what? In the end, I will not be ashamed. God is tried and true. He's a sure foundation. I don't need to align my life up with the world in order to have you know, identity. I find my identity in Jesus alone. In the end, when he is revealed, I will be like him, for I'll see him as he is. Then we'll say, nanny, nanny, nanny kind of thing. No, we, no, we won't. It'll be, it'll be sad because the world will be lost. So yes, we have this amazing um, position and identity in Christ. So Jesus is called a living stone. Now you and I are called a living stone. Now he's called a cornerstone. Something else, just kind of adding to another name that he has. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says that this term means a visible support on which the rest of the building relies for strength and stability. It's basically what we have already been talking about. Christ is the cornerstone, and he's our stability. This whole building, this church, everything that we have in Christ is all built upon him. And we know that this foundation won't crack, as some do, right? Especially when, as earthquakes come. We know that our foundation will stand strong and true. Verse 7, therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. So Peter now quotes again from the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 118. I love how Peter quotes just repeatedly and so fluently from the Old Testament, showing that he was a man of the word of God. I mean, they knew the scripture. When it says that he was ignorant and untrained, that just means he hadn't been to seminary. He didn't have the degrees and the, and the status that the rabbis had, but man, they were people of the word. And he was a man of the word. He used scripture to back up everything he was saying. And that's the same thing you and I need to do as believers. The word is our foundation. And if we don't have a scripture to back it up, well, then we can't rely on it and trust it. But Peter did have scripture for everything he was saying. And he contrasts those who believe in this living stone with those who do not believe in the living stone. He said, let's look at their end. He said, first, those who believe in Jesus, that he's precious, they will not be put to shame. They won't be disappointed. Now, the word believe here is an action word. It means to trust in Christ, to believe who he is, the fact that he's precious, the fact that he's the son of God. Those who reject Jesus will be disappointed ultimately in the end. They'll realize in the end that Jesus is actually the true cornerstone, the one that they should have built their life on. What a sad thing that must be to reject the Christian message and ultimately in the end stand in front of Jesus and realize if I only receive Christ, if I only received this life, you know, that, that these people were telling me about, you know, they'll realize in the end that he was actually the stone which their life was to be built upon. The Jews are going to realize that in the tribulation. As Christ comes back, they're going to look on the one whom they have pierced. And they're going to realize, man, we've, we've rejected our Messiah. Our people, our ancestors have rejected our Messiah. Ultimately, in the end, they'll receive the judgment which is due to them. Now, notice it says here they, are, uh, they were appointed to this at the end of, of verse 8. Now, this verse isn't saying that God appoints some to salvation and then he appoints some to disobedience, saying, yeah, I'm going to choose these people to be saved and I'm going to choose these people right here to disobedience. They have no choice. I'm just going to assign to that because I'm gracious. I do that because I'm loving and gracious. <laughs> now, that's not what this verse is saying at all. But they were appointed to the, their ultimate end, which means because they rejected Christ, 
they are now appointed to stumble. And those who reject Jesus, who die without Christ, ultimately will be appointed to stumble. They'll stand in front of the white throne judgment and the books will be opened. Their names will not be found in it and they'll be cast alive into the lake of fire. But now back to us in verse nine. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You're like, you're like, come on, Peter, just keep bringing it. Keep bringing it. I, I like that. That's good stuff right there. Peter turns his attention back to us, and he tells us all that we are in Jesus, our position in the Lord. You and I, the church of Jesus Christ, both Jew and Gentile have been blessed through Jesus. Let me read to you Exodus 19, verses five and six. This is what God said to Israel there at Mount Sinai. He said, now therefore, if you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like what Peter is saying here. Now, Peter is not saying that the church, you know, is now the spiritual Israel or that God has no longer a plan for ethnic Israel. No, we know from the scriptures that God, you know, has set Israel aside for a time. And in the end, after the church is raptured, God will turn his attention back to Israel to restore them to himself. All Israel will be saved. But for now, you and I as the church occupy a very special place in the plan and the program of God. You and I are his special people. We're a chosen generation to do the work of God on earth. And when God's done with us, he's gonna take us home in the rapture. We're a, we're a holy priesthood. We're a kingdom of priests. We're all these things. And, and all, all these things are really to represent who we are and what we're supposed to do. It's really said there in, in uh, verse nine and 10. It says that we've been obtained mercy and the reason why we have obtained mercy is so we can declare God's light to a dark world. And that's really what Israel's position was in the Old Testament. You see, God gave them this special relationship with him, but the purpose of the special relationship was not based upon anything that they did. It's based upon his grace, but it was so they can be a light to all the nations around them. They were to shine forth as God's special people. They were to be different. And all the world was to look at Israel and realize, wow, look at what they have because of the God that they serve. Look at how blessed they are because of the God that they serve. Well, rather than do that, they wanted to be like the nations around them. They said, hey, we want a king. That's all the other nations are doing, right? Oh, yeah, let's give, it, give us a king. Idols? Oh, everybody worships their idols in these little houses on the hills. Let's, hey, let's have that. Forget the tabernacle in Shiloh. Forget the temple. Let's, let's have our own little tabernacle, our own little houses on, on the hills. We can go worship at the high places. You know, and, and ultimately, in the end, they were, they were disciplined for that. And so, yes, you and I, as a church, we occupy a very special place in the plan, the plan and program of God. But we need to make sure that we're separated from the world as we pilgrimage through this life. We need to not be more like the world, but be less like the world. More like Jesus, who is the living stone that we come to daily. Now, from these different names and positions that we have in Christ, we can glean some implications as we close. And here's a couple of them. First, we need to respond to our position. You see, God has placed us in the church for a specific reason and a purpose, so we need to be available and ready to discover what that is to be used by the Lord. Second, as we learn about our identity, 
we need to know that it's all based upon unity. A kingdom, a special priesthood, a building, all these imply unity. In a church which is divided, a house which is divided can't stand. And so we need to love one another, which is what we learned last week. From verse one and two, we need to put away evil speaking. We need to love one another from a pure heart with fervent love. That's the only way that we can operate effectively under this new role that the Lord has given us. Also, our life is to be based upon and lived for God's glory. We're to shine forth like lights in this dark world so that people may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So in closing, if we're to sum up, we can say, man, we have some pretty cool nicknames. We have some pretty cool titles. Now we need to live up to these things. We need to walk as lights in this dark world that others may see the Lord and come to know him.